you know, I'm all ready for this today. I'm, uh, I'm, I, I have two drinks. I have a hot drink and a cold drink, neither of which contains glass. <laughs> Welcome to GCP Life, episode number 35 for the 10th of March, 2023. GCP Life is sponsored by Kazna, and I'm your host, Stephen Bancroft. On today's show, we take a look at the Topaz undersea cable. Make sure you update your Plex, because that's how LastPass got hacked. Is Google logging insecure? Plus, what is prompt engineering? But before we get to any of that... I'd like to introduce the co-host of the show, Dave Wall. How are you going, Dave? You know what, mate? I am doing awesome. Thanks. <laughs> uh, coming off the back of a successful change, I'm looking down the barrel of a four-day weekend. I know. Everything I know. Is, what a uh, morning for us, eh? What yeah. a morning. <laughs> Fortunately, we didn't have to do too much. We just sat back and watched. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best kind of change. I know. It's, it's <laughs> when, all, when all your part's fine. Yeah, it's quite comforting to know that all of our parts seem to work flawlessly. Um I mean, watching everyone scramble. No, it wasn't. It wasn't quite like that. <laughs> we got there in the end. Um, no, all, all good. All done within the in the defined windows, and um, yeah, everyone's happy. What you been up to? Any tech adventures? Um, hmm. Uh, probably no, no major tech adventures. I mean, in yeah. a, in my, I guess, a life adventures thing, I've now made the uh, the decision to go down to four days a week. Oh, so that's right. kind of a, a big yeah, one. That's a, a big one, yeah. Very, very modern. So, mm. Mm. <laughs> so um, yeah, I'm not doing a compressed week or anything like that. So not yep. like 40 in, in four or anything like that. I've just, I'm dropping a day, 32 hours. Yep. Yep. So far, so good. I haven't had the, uh, I haven't had the reduced payslip yet. So, but <laughs> at the have, moment, it's all benefits. <laughs> you did have the mortgage rate increase, so they and, got uh, that going for you. Yeah. Yes. So there's there's <laughs> less coming in, and there's no. definitely more going out. Yep, but yep. Um, no, we all yeah, felt the, it. Yeah. <laughs> but a day off is priceless. Oh, totally. Um, how about yourself, mate? I um I mucked around with a few things just in this project, Brian. I uh, I made a little bash script. And I'd have to say it's one of the neatest and compact and sort of most techy ones I've ever done. Um, well, yeah, now it's on par with some of the more techy ones that I've done, but it basically takes a dump from uh, Toofin, um, a firewall dump from Toofin, and converts it into HCL that we can use in uh, Terraform for NSXT. Right, so you were able to convert uh, firewall, and so you've pulled it from Tufin. But what was the the actual uh, firewall that Tufin was was pulling from? Oh, it was a Juniper. Juniper. Oh, it was a Juniper, yeah. right? So you've yeah. been able to do rule transformation from an in situ firewall, yep, of one make, and make that into infrastructure as code onto NSXT. Yep, with a single Brilliant. script. Yeah, single script, and that's all part. distributed firewall. It was that's all distributed doing. firewall, correct? Yeah, that's a heck of a transformation. We already had obviously like the the basis of the policy was there. You're not doing any of that, right? And you're telling the distributed firewall where to be applied, but building the policy out itself, yeah, that was all automated, right? And and us. roughly how many rules was it? Just a couple, or um, probably. Well, I'm just thinking now. I think it's like. In HCL, it's like 1,500 lines. It sort of breaks down to about 400 rules. 
Nice. Mm. Mm. It's a lot better than going through that by hand. <laughs> oh, yeah. It would have been very, very painful and very, very tedious. Um, and, and fraught with mistakes doing that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And this way, yeah. too, we've, we've taken an exact copy, right? We've taken the name of the rule, uh, the source and destination, and it's perfectly the same. We did have to futz around with the sources a little bit, but now that we've got that in there, that's, that's all in place because we do have a bit more work on this project to do. Um, but, uh, yeah, really, really happy with the outcome. And that'll go on a repo, and that'll be a tool we can use later. Very well. Sure, yeah. Uh, so that was my little bit of fun. Um, outside of work, tech adventures, not, not a lot for me. I'm going on a big trip in June up to, uh, up to the north, up to Cape York, so I'm putting some You're going to the very tip, right? I'm going to the very tip, the most northerly point of the country. Don't fall off. So I won't, I won't fall off, and I won't, <laughs> I won't end up in Papua New Guinea. But, um, yeah, so I'm putting in a lot of preparation for that at the moment, just working on my car and uh, buying, buying lots of stuff at the moment. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the four-wheel drive's in good enough neck for it? To yeah. No, it's, it's a big drive. Going strong, yeah. So it's, yeah, quite a few days. It's like four days, seven hours a day just to get to, like, Bam, you know, the, the the main station before you're even like even entering the tip. Yeah. <laughs> it's a long way. Uh, so you can take the whole family? Uh, no, I'm actually going with a another guy from Casna and uh, a mate of mine's coming in my car. So awesome. Yeah, the, the other guy from Casna is bringing his family. And uh, yeah, we'll uh, actually Ian Brown, who we know Ian Brown from the show, he's a friend of the show. Um, and yeah, I'll just go in my patrol and take my friend and that's it. But, uh, yeah, it should be fun, fun trip. Yeah. Very nice. What's this I hear about, uh, self-repossessing cars, Dave? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> speaking <laughs> of cars, speaking of cars, this doesn't <laughs> happen to you. <laughs> oh no. Uh, Nissan uh, patrols, uh, there's nothing automated about them. <laughs> as, as one person, person explained to me, they're a, a blunt tool with a purpose. So yeah, they aren't automating themselves anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. What's so this I hear about this car? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so Ford's gone and, and well, they're, they're going for a series of patents, which Kind of, uh, I suppose, at the low end, these are more annoyances for, like, if you haven't paid, <laughs> you know, you, you've fallen delinquent on your car payments. But I think at the, at the low end, they're like, you know, like the win- windows where it's like, you've got a non-genuine copy and the screen goes black and you get a little note down the side. <laughs> I think they're sort of talking like that. You're like, maybe you'll get a little notification that, you know, your car is behind on its payments or something. Um scaling that up to okay every time you get in the car it makes an annoying sound and then increasingly up to like it just won't drive or maybe it'll drive you to um like the hospital if you need to but you can't go anywhere else uh and then if they had fully automated vehicles their patent covers the ability for it to like drive to be repossessed on its own (laughs) (laughs) like <laughs> yeah, why not? <laughs> why not, right? So, got to make the uh, the, re- the vehicle repossessing company. Well, I suppose it doesn't even make it easier for them. It just would replace them. <laughs> well, it depends who you've got the finance with, right? So, this is Ford seeking his patent. So, you could have finance directly with Ford, I guess, uh, and then they could trigger it. But if you've got finance with, like, a third party... Uh, doesn't that open up a sort of, like, murky, bit of a murky area? 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. The, it's, it's interesting in terms of, like, aside from the, you know, like a self-repossessing car piece, but, like, how much control are they going to then enable? Like, if, um, I don't know, I don't know, like, uh, say your car gets stolen, could they just have it drive itself to a police station <laughs> or, yeah, lock the doors and just drive straight to well, the county jail? <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. I mean, well- Straight away, I'm thinking we do this with phones, right? We want fingerprint ID to start it. That's that's the thing, right? Yep. And then, uh, yeah, where's where's my phone? You find my phone. We'll find my car. And do like yeah. summoning to you, yeah. Summoning, yeah, so, yeah, bring it back. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, I think at the moment, uh, you know, the patent hasn't been granted, but uh, they, they're, they're definitely seeking that. I suppose if, you know, if they're- uh, interests, even if they don't end up implementing this, if they have the patent on it, at least they can license it. So, yeah, yeah, I'm surprised it's something that uh, Musk hasn't come up with. <laughs> Sounds like yeah. his kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and just uh, if you're a Twitter employee, it just won't let you go anywhere but the office, yeah. <laughs> and then it won't let you drive home, home unless you've done enough work. <laughs> Just it takes you back. Stuck in the office. Please can't drop me home. <laughs> back to work, drone. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, enough of that silliness. Let's get on oh. with the community news. All right. So in this week's community news, we've got a few items happening. We've got uh, Dorinda, one of the principals at Casta. Uh, he's delivering a keynote at Data Futurology uh, on the 15th of March. That's in Sydney. A uh, conference called Data Futurology. Um, I'll put a link in the show note. I believe it's uh, part of Ops World. And uh, yeah, you'll see you'll see one of our uh, fellow data. There's, there's his picture there right on the page uh, giving a keynote. So, yeah, get along to that if that's your bag. Um, We also have Adish, who's one of our uh, peer senior engineers, uh, speaking at uh, Sydney GDG, the Kasner office on the 30th of March. So, uh, Google Developers Group is running in the Kasner Sydney office on the 30th of March. And I'm going to go. I'm going to be sporting the... Uh, GCP Life Wear, so you'll see me, uh, and I'll probably jump up and uh, and talk about GCP Life a little bit as well at some point. Oh, awesome. One, one of your rare visits to the office. <laughs> one of my rare visits to the office, and that only takes an entire event to get me there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I need to have a reason. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Got to have a good reason. Uh, and then on the 30th of March, it's Kazna's fourth birthday. So, um, if you're part of Kasna, then you'll know that there's uh, various events happening around at the various Kasna hubs. Uh, and if you're not part of Kasna, then uh, you probably won't be there. <laughs> but you will see you will see social media posts. <laughs> I, I, I don't exactly know what the what the arrangements there are, but I'm sure guests are welcome if uh, if we want to organise that. Uh, and then finally, we have Ian Brown, who is speaking uh, at GDG Brisbane, and he's speaking on GKE for beginners. Uh, that's on the 16th of March. If you go to Meetup, and you'll find it pretty easily, you'll find GDG Brisbane in Meetup, then you should see the event there and register your interest and you'll get emails and I'll tell you all about it. I think that's it for the community news.
Let's move on with the news items. I thought we'd start by having a just a just a quick touch on uh, the new Topaz cable. Uh, now this this sparked the electrical engineer in me. If, if you don't know, I'm actually trained as an electrical engineer back in the day, and I I did work for a company called OTC. They were the overseas telecommunication company in Australia. And guess what they did? Undersea cables was a big part of what they did. So this so does really should have been like UTC, not overseas cables. But- yeah, okay, yeah. Well, I'd like did, to see some overseas like suspended <laughs> across. The yeah, ocean. well, they did satellites as well, so you know, oh, satellite communications. That, yeah. that, that's over oceans. <laughs> that's over oceans. Yeah, very okay. much so. Um, so yeah, Google has laid the first undersea cable from Vancouver to Japan. This this link did not exist before. Right. So there's nothing on that path. No. So if no. you were in Japan and needed to get traffic to Canada, it yeah. would have to go either, I guess, south and then into the states and then up. That's right, all the way around, probably down to Hawaii and then and then back. Oh up. yeah, yeah, and then along the west coast back up to Vancouver, uh, and likewise for the return traffic. Mm. So that didn't exist before. Um, I I probably should have done a little more research. I'm assuming there's a connection now from Japan to China. Oh, there's. I've Pretty sure there's plenty of them. It must be. Yeah. So this also gives Canada a quick way into China, and and likewise China a quick way into Canada, because um, they just go via this now. Um, and I'll link the blog in the uh, the show notes. But uh, here's some quotes. There's a new subsea cable in town, Topaz, the first ever fibre cable to connect Canada and Asia. Once complete, Topaz will, Topaz will run from Vancouver to the small town of Port Albertini on the west coast of Vancouver Island in British Columbia and across the Pacific Ocean to the prefectures of Mie and Ibaraki in Japan. Uh, and they expect it to be ready for service in 2023. Now, a couple of things I really like about this. First of all, Google was really sensitive to the indigenous population in Canada and they really call that out um, in several places. Um, Traditional and treaty rights and local communities are deeply important to our infrastructure projects. The Topaz Cable is built alongside the traditional territories of the Hapasachasin, excuse me for pronouncing that, and the Ma'anulth. And we have consulted with the partners of the First Nations in every step of the way. Excellent. Um, So that's really good. Uh, And the other part I, I did like about this is that they're using this new technology uh, called wave slen- wavelength selective switching. What is wavelength selective switching? Yeah. Any ideas? Any God, ideas? I, I have no <laughs> idea. Um, I mean, I I'm, I'm vaguely aware of how you use different wavelengths to transmit data through a fiber cable, and they get there at different times depending on how they bounce around. But uh, how to actually switch that? I got no idea. Right. Well. Let me let me enlighten you, Dave. Yeah, drop some knowledge bombs <laughs> uh, on me. Now, I have worked on uh, the fibre termination ends uh, where, the, where the cable comes into the uh, exchange. I have worked on and around that equipment. Um, have a little bit of uh, – when I was, you know, a young whippersnapper and doing the uh, – Doing the trainee ships, right? So I worked a little bit in that area. Splicing uh, fibre and – No, not so much splicing fibre, just, just – just, 
using just calibrating the ends and and taking taking um, connections out like uh, once it's converted into electrical, you know, patching stuff into the end of it and stuff like that uh, in the exchange. Um, but with the width of a garden hose, the topaz, the topaz cable will house 16 fibre pairs. Now, that's a new thing as well. They've squeezed into it 16 fibre pairs for a total capacity of 240 terabits per second. Terabits per second, right? TBPS. Yeah, it includes support for wavelength selective switch, an efficient and software-defined way to carve up the spectrum and optical fiber pair for flexibility in routing and advanced resilience. So if you look at the diagram of this cable, um, it comes out from a single place in Vancouver and then it splits off. Eberakai and Minai. Now Mie. What I from what I understand is at the junction there, they have this wavelength selective switch and they can dynamically allocate bandwidth to, to one half of the cable or the other half of the cable depending on oh. where the demand is. And they do it in a very tricky way. They don't actually need to convert the, white, the light back to electricity, do the switch, and then convert it back. They can do it all in the light spectrum. Right. So you don't get that latency hit from doing the muxing or whatever it is? That's right. So in the past, they would have to do muxing, that's right, to, to demux it and then remux it. But now they just divide it based on the the multiplex domain. So, are we aware of what multiplexing is? I'll give you a quick telco lesson here. With with multiplexing, there's two types of multiplexing, right? You have time division multiplexing and frequency division multiplexing. So, multiplexing is basically putting more than one signal into one medium. So, with time division multiplexing, you're sampling the data and you're interleaving the data in like a time domain. So you've got different signals in the same medium traveling one after the other. With frequency division multiplexing, you divide up the frequency spectrum, same thing. So in fiber optics, that's what you do. You take the whole visible light spectrum, or even maybe a little bit further, and you carve it up so that you have bandwidths of signal in there. And you can put different signals, different different data streams in each of those bandwidths, right? And this allows you to, 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 to divide that spectrum. Then what they do is they basically take a, a um, something like a prism or something that's going to divide uh, uh, they, like a division grid and they split that spectrum out. Mind you, this is in a tiny chip, tiny, tiny chip, right? Imagine like a CPU, like it's maybe a quarter the size of a CPU and it's all packed in there and they might have, they'll have this division grid, this refraction grid, they call it, that refracts a light. Think of the cover of the Pink Floyd album, right? Yeah. Refracts a light. Dark side of the moon, baby. Dark side of the moon, that's right. And then those refracted bandwidths hit a mirror and in this chip, there's like 300 mirrors. And those mirrors can be deflected in two axes. And then they use that to deflect the light signal back into another fiber to split it off in another direction. I'm a like, dog. Think about what's going on <laughs> yeah. to make that happen, right? <laughs> right. And this is, this is, we're talking like 50 nanometer scale, maybe yeah. smaller, right? 20, 25 nanometer scale. No, oh, when sorry. Computers get so complicated. Micromedic. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, it's 50, 
micrometer scale, like really small. All right, so um, yeah, this is uh, from what I from the reading I'm doing at it. This is the first time this has been implemented uh, like in production and at this scale. Yeah, yeah. U- using these MEMS microelectrical mirrors, microelectrical mirrors that can just be moved. There's no motor to move them per se. It's just uh, a steel strip is flexed with electrical current, and that allows the mirror to move. Amazing. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. This is what brings the internet to us all and the cloud, right? Little tiny mirrors reflecting light. <laughs> yeah, right. So it's not it's not a series of tubes anymore. It's the internet. It's a series of mirrors. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> now, I heard I heard a long time ago, long, many, many years ago, that uh, they were there was a technology they were sort of postulating about with light computers. So rather than using electrons to, and, and transistors to switch gates uh, and, and move electrons around like that, you just have a little laser and then a mirror reflects the photons and that can work the same way as a transistor gate does. A lot more efficient, right? And obviously, there's no heat dissipation with that, so you're not wasting any energy. But I don't know where the where the technology's gone. I mean, it's. I suppose how how much can you shrink it, and how know, much like can it is yeah. that something that you know will it shrink smaller than you know where we're at with an electron gate, knowing that we're starting to approach the limits of where, uh, you get the electrons like migrating through the walls because they're yeah, so small, they're so <laughs> small they they crosstalk and interfere with each other. Yeah, yeah. yeah so. Uh, yeah, I think we could probably do it, but you're right. We wouldn't have – it wouldn't be the same form factor. It would be a lot bigger. Right? Mm, potentially. Uh, and you probably couldn't fit as many bits in or as many, many gates, so it wouldn't be as powerful. Uh, but, yeah, that, so that was my journey back down my electrical engineering rabbit hole, but uh, really cool technology um, and uh, certainly makes things a lot simpler. And it's going to reduce the latency as well. It has to reduce the latency. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Gives everyone another path across to the, uh, you know, west coast of the US as well, like up that seaboard. So, yeah, if you're in, like, if you're going into Pacific Northwest data center mm. from from Japan, then this is this is going to be a preferred route now. Definitely. Without a doubt. Yeah. Cool. All right. Uh, it's enough of Topaz right now. What about, uh, tell us about LastPass, Dave. What's going on oh, with LastPass? Oh, jeez. Okay. So, LastPass had two major breaches. Uh, I think they were both last year. Right now, I say this as someone now, I have moved off LastPass, but I have not yet rotated all of my secrets because that's a, it's a big process. But I haven't rotated all of my secrets yet that were in there. Okay. In fact, now I'm going to have to go do that before this podcast goes live. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, um, what's, what's his name? Dave, let me just look that up. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Um, so they had one breach where, uh, an attacker got in, they found a a whole bunch of information about their environment, but the, uh, the outcome of it, uh, was that like customer data is safe. You know, we've all our, the secrets are encrypted. We don't even know the secrets to your, um, to your vaults, you know, you're fine. Then later on, they had a second attack, which they thought was unrelated. It's now, uh, and actually, the interesting thing that brings us back to Google is uh, they worked with Mandiant 
to do this reporting. Mm. Um, this second attack turned out to actually be based off information that they found on the first attack. The attackers went after like one of like four DevOps engineers at LastPass who happened to have access to like the enterprise vaults that had a bunch of their keys in it. They're a super targeted attack. Mm. Mm. The thing that was interesting about it is it wasn't like, you know, like a phishing attack, they clicked a link or anything like that. He was breached because his Plex server was available and the attackers were able to hit that and run, you know, remote code and then get a keylogger right. on there and right. then use that to see when he unlocked yeah. the, uh, the enterprise vault. Right. 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 So yeah. very targeted. Yeah. Right. I think because it was like his home computer. It wasn't if, like uh, Plex installed on his LastPass machine. Yeah. Look, if I can actually think how that might come about. It, it, Plex, qu- quite often you would have Plex publicly available. Right, Not me, sure. but yes. <laughs> well, people do, right? You I have know, a, I know they do. Thing. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah my, uh, my dad wants yeah. to watch something on my Plex server. And- exactly, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, bit of evil Gen X, get that in there, you know, and suddenly you're logging keys. I could see how that would happen. Uh-huh. Plex has not been without vulnerabilities in the past, and if you didn't update that thing, then, yeah, I could see how you get into trouble. Yeah. And, you know, you got to think about that as in terms of just a general uh, risk factor. Like people's home PCs, even okay, even if you're like in your enterprise environment, <laughs> you have Plex for enterprise, but you know, you'll have services running on servers, and maybe you've got, um, you know, some vulnerability scanning in there. You know, you're doing that, you're, you've either, you're either directly interrogating the, the VMs themselves or you're scanning mm. for open ports. You have that thing within your enterprise, but you don't have that on like your employees' home computers. Mm. Right, and someone, you know, even if you're like a really techie person, uh, you'll have installed Plex. And how often are you going to sit there and like monitor for CVEs for Plex? <laughs> right, like you probably Ple- care very much about like the stack that you use at work. <laughs> well, you know, I I do have an Ansible run that runs every night and keeps everything updated. So yeah, there, yeah, you, yeah, you, you yeah, could do yeah. that, and, and, <laughs> and Plex does tell you when there are updates available. Yes, but only if so, you like look at it. Well, yeah, you know what I'm saying. Like, you know, why, why have, like, would you have a, why would you have a Plex instance and not be watching stuff on it? Like all the time. Yeah, and it tells you right up in the top right corner the updates available. I don't know. Okay. Uh, oh, I'm just I'm trying sorry. to play okay. the counter I'm, argument. I'm, yeah, all right. <laughs> Maybe he did a little fair enough. A better DevOps engineer than me. <laughs> Has all uh, his no. has all his home environment. Yeah, exactly. Why, yeah. why has this happened? I'm just asking the question. Why? Because there's so many flags there he would have seen to tell him that there was a potential problem. Fair uh, enough. Okay. <laughs> anyway, let, you were saying let he who is without CVEs <laughs> cast the first stone. I had plenty of them, I'm sure. <laughs> In fact, I'm running update update right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Jumps on your pie hole. Jumps on it. <laughs> um, um, anyway. Yes. So I Sorry. guess the point is, like, what I what I took away from this was yep. um, this was highly targeted. Like this is ca- so targeted. Yeah. Like they went explicitly after this guy. Yeah. Poor woman. I, I don't do you think? Do you think they might have? They might have had some sort of list, and they just. 
went after everyone on the list and then they found someone that had a potential way in and, and then they've crafted the attack to go for that person? Yeah, so from what I've seen, um, they think that they used the information that was in the first uh, breach yeah, yeah. to ha- come up with that list, to yeah. know who to go after. Right. Because once they got a name, then there's enough of a way to track them down, and then, yeah. yeah. Really, really shocking. Because they must- I'm, I'm just sort of thinking through how they must have discovered it as well, right? Because you'd either have to- know the person's IP address, which, you know, I suppose that's doable, um, or determine what, like, their Plex username is, maybe? Um, which, if, again, like, could have just been their email address anyway, and that would be easy enough to find. Could, could have been, maybe it was just using a password from one of the previous breaches. Mm. Get into the Plex server. Uh, then you've got to get root on the server that they're on, so there would have been a known exploit in Plex to do that. Yep. Uh, and then once you've got root on a server on the local network, well, <laughs> yeah, have at it. Uh, but, yeah, the, it does beg the question, why Why didn't they have a proper CICD pipeline in the first place? Well, and Dan, this what? is where one of the things that they've said is, was an issue is the fact that, this person really shouldn't have had access to those passwords anyway, right? Like, these passwords should be something that no human ever knows. A system should use them as it requires and should throw them away, and and no one really should be in a a situation where they can go and, like, view the vault, get the key, and it still be, uh, like, a valid key. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Should be an expiry on it or, um, you know, system password should be super long and strong and, you know, um, if you if you're doing things via DevOps and you're committing to repos and the CI tooling's doing all the work, yeah, I don't, I don't know why. Yeah, anyone would need that. I think though, you know, part of this is where they've sort of said this is quite shocking. Is that you know we're running up against there's the trend of you know being able to make people be able to work from anywhere and use their own tools, you know, especially in developers. Mm. Um, so, you know, a lot of it's been very friendly. You can use your own environment, your, your own PC, you can have your own idea, you can manage it all yourself. You don't have to use our work-supplied machine. Unfortunately, you can be breached in that way. Like, that's... If you're not treating your development machine, even if it's a personal one, with the same level of hygiene as you would your employer's one, then there is indeed a risk there. Yeah. Because it's not like their online systems weren't protected. I mean, I guess, you know, they would have had strong password policies and probably had multi-factor. You know, Mm -hmm. we know that there's ways to bypass multi-factor and all those checks in place, but... Uh, you have the right keylogger and the right tools and you, you have that installed in the right place and you just pass all that, just destroy all that. Yeah, so uh, I guess the moral of the story is if you run a Plex server, go and update it. <laughs> yes, or turn off UPnP. <laughs> turn off UPnP, yeah. Oh, and turn that off on your- uh, You should little, turn that off in general. UPnP just turn is that off. terrible. If you've got one of these little cheap routers, turn it off on that as well. <laughs> yep. You really don't want it on that. All right, so let's move on. While we're on the security threat sort of bandwagon, um, 
bunch of stories. It's a slow news day, Dave. Slow news day. Um, there, there were umpteen stories about uh, Google employees having to share the same desks. <laughs> and that's just every news outlet picked that up because there was nothing else. Because they just sort of, oh, they reduced the amount of office space. Like, who cares? Uh, who cares? Who, it honestly, means, it means less people have to go into the office. Wonderful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I. I yeah, I've ignored that story for, for us. But <laughs> well, you've just covered it now. Actually. I've just covered it. Yeah, that's all you need to know. <laughs> yep. uh, but this one tweaked my interest a little bit. Uh, Google Cloud may be more vulnerable than its competitors to unnoticed data theft thanks to logs that are not as helpful as they should be. Now, it's a bit of a clickbaity title. Really, <laughs> it's a clickbaity title. It's, this is, it's nothing, right? Cybersecurity firm Mitiga analyzed Google Cloud's online storage and found that the platform's logging mechanism comes up woefully short in terms of providing useful information. Okay, define. So, look, what this, what this sort of boils down to is the fact that um, uh, lack of coverage means that when a threat actor downloads your data, or even worse, exfiltrates it to an external bucket, the only logs you will see will be the same as if the threat actor just viewed the metadata object. It's all to do with this uh, get entry. Ah, uh, uh, okay, right. So it, there's only it only flags for metadata, not the whole item. Yeah. So in short, the main problem with GCP is basic storage log, which are, by the way, not enabled by default. So that that is so the storage logging is not enabled by default. Everything uses the same description or event, objects.get. Uh-huh. Right? It doesn't matter what the actual get type is. So reading a file, downloading a file, copying a file to an external bucket or server, or reading the file object made, metadata. Okay, but the, I suppose the question is, is in terms of uh, IAM, could you, could you set up your your – uh, I am in such a way that somebody could view the metadata, but not actually view, not actually download the file. That that would be the thing for me because if if the one level of access gives you both, then it doesn't really matter that they're only logging it that one way. Yeah, you would need to set up a custom role that just had those permissions in it mm. um, to enable you to. Um, to, to just permit what's what's required uh, without looking at all the role. I mean, there's mm, probably yeah. probably a you know a massive long list of, of yes. custom permissions that can be assigned, right? I, without going and look, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, but um, that that would be something I would look at immediately for that. Um, now, there are some ways to mitigate this. Uh, those steps include defining a VPC service control. And admins can also restrict access to storage resources and consider removing read or transfer permissions. So that would be just setting up uh, a, a custom role around that. Um, this article goes on to say it's unclear why Google chooses to differentiate between – or chooses not to differentiate between the different types of access, um, but AWS does. I'm actually reading this. Uh, I'm, I'm reading the um, IAM permissions for cloud storage at the moment. Yeah, to say yeah there'd be heaps there, right? Uh, um, I would say this is a case of MVP. 
get it in. They've got some sort of logging there. Uh, we'll re- revisit it later and put, you know, if it comes up, we'll put some, some better I logging on it. I can't see an object permission that gives you access to view the metadata, but not view the item itself. Right. Right. So storage objects get. Yep. So you basically, you can, you can do, of the collections, you can do get. Get I am policy, but that doesn't give you the metadata. Uh, and list. Oh, okay. List to do it. List. list objects in a bucket. Also read object metadata. Okay, there we go. Excluding ACLs. Hmm. Right. So if you just gave someone list and not get, they then could read the, theory, read they the metadata. Metadata, yeah, yep. but not download it. And not the object. You could also go the other way around. You could not give them lists, but just give them get, and at least mm. that, that prevents them listing the bucket so they don't actually yes, know what the object name is. You could just get the, yeah. the one thing or whatever yeah. you got, but yeah, you couldn't list it out. But you would you get the list- metadata for that file, but obviously you can get the file as well. Yeah. So yeah. In fact, I did that on AWS years ago when I created a function. I obfuscated the, the object name with a hash on it, so it was public, but there's no way you could figure the hash out on the name. So when it, when it went to the individual that needed it, they could click it and get it, but there's no one else that could get it. Oh, right. So it was kind of like a, a token in built into the- it Built into it, yeah. Big, big long string on, attached to the file name, um, you know, 30 characters or something. Um, yeah, seemed to work well enough. <laughs> the, the data wasn't, you know, super- Super high, high critical. It's just probably is now, right? That well, I didn't, it's just, it was just logs. It. And I didn't want their competitors to get it, so <laughs> that's, that's what we did. Um, yeah. So, look, I don't know about this. I, I think it's a bit of a beat up. I, I think it's a bit of a nothing story. But you know, being the slow news day that it is, a few outlets have grabbed hold of it. No, uh, Google actually responded on this. I'm just reading here. Um, our security engineers have closely reviewed this report of insufficient audit logging within Google Cloud Storage. We can confirm that there is no exfiltration risk. This is not a vulnerability. Exactly. And I, I don't think they are saying it's a vulnerability. It's, mm. it's a, a deficit in what the logging does, basically. Mm. It could be better. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, looks like the tech... Cutbacks have hit the Australian shores. Yeah, there's been a, a few movements there, or movements out the door, unfortunately. Um, Atlassian, 500 jobs in the latest software cutback. Yeah, and, th- and this is interesting. Well, I mean, that's obviously sad for everyone impacted, but um, like it was only, what, what was it, six months ago? I think I remember there being all sorts of things in the news about Atlassian. They had a they had the Atlassian van that were driving all over their country and they were going to hire like a thousand research <laughs> That's positions. That's right. That's right. The, like Mike Cannon Brooks in a van. Yeah. Uh, and uh, no, now 500 of those people. Yep. 5% of their workforce. Yeah, it's 5%. a big cut. Yeah. And it's going to cost them about 75 mil in restructuring costs. 75 mil. I wish I had that in list change just to throw around. Uh, so just so you can make some people redundant. That's- <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but uh, uh, apparently the reductions do not reflect Atlassian's financial performance. Uh, they're focusing their resources in growth divisions, such as cloud computing. 
And hopefully not in VR. (laughs) (laughs) It's the future. We should bet all of our hopes on VR. (laughs) So- did Meta end up pulling a pin on VR? What's no, going on there? <laughs> no. Okay, so there, there were some articles floating around that, like, Zuckerberg had pulled the pin on Meta and stuff, and then I, I went back and I dug into a, a, a bit of that, and it really seemed like one outlet wrote that article and then it was picked up, like, 30 other places. Right. It's not the case. Like, from what, uh, from what I've seen, Meta's just getting into the AI game. Right, that's that's where yep. they're just sort of they've just like they didn't say, Oh, we're not doing metaverse anymore. It's we are now having to get into like chat GPT and you know, we want to incorporate that into WhatsApp and messages and yeah. That's yeah. that's where that was at. And then this other article was like, Well, they've said they want to get into like, you know, the generative AI space, so clearly they don't want to do metaverse. I think they can walk and chew gum badly at the same time. <laughs> Uh, and the other tech company that got hit was ThoughtWorks. Uh, yeah. Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, um, laying off 100. Yeah, so uh, we'll keep our eye on that and see if there's any more coming. But uh, you never know, with the interest rate rises as they are. Oh, it's been brutal. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it could be, we could see more. All right, and finally, we take a look at the latest in the AI wars. AI wars. <laughs> Oh boy, what a fortnight in AI! Um, I uh, I went away and 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 had a look at uh, some stuff that uh, that you can do with ChatGPT. Oh, first of all, before we do that, mm-hmm. I got access to the the new Bing uh, AI assisted search. Yes, now Is it everything it's cracked up to be. What what are we, what are we going to search for? What what was I searching for the other day? Oh, okay. Um, quiet uh, campsites because you know everyone wants to go to a quiet campsite. I, what I do is I do the search like normal, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I mean, gee, how how much <laughs> this is most, basically males will be a Google search. Yeah. You see here, you've got this chat icon oh, here. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah. You got so you know this is great podcast content, but yeah, I've just done a normal search and it's come back with the regular search window. Yeah, right. So you got, it's got chat where normally you would see like the tab like on Google where it's like you know shopping or videos or images. Yeah, or, images. There's a chat yeah. one there, so I can click that now. Okay, and it takes me into a chat bar, right? And I can do. This is where I now have to use my prompt engineering, and we'll get onto what prompt engineering is in a minute. Um, um. And say, I'd like to camp overnight at a quiet place in the northwest of Sydney. All right. And bang. It gives me, well, it even gave me a return before I even finished, right? Yeah, because it already, yeah, because when you had the quiet campsites, when you hit that, when you came into this chat window, it was already searching for that. Yeah, that's right. Look at this. It's giving okay. me a return. I found six quiet campsites in the northwest of Sydney. The first one is Lane Cove National Park, which is an award-winning park in a bushland set about 10 kilometres northwest of Sydney. The second one is Ingar Campground, which is 90 minutes west of Sydney in the Blue Mountains. And it goes on and on and on, right? Now, I could continue this chat. Um, oh, okay. Tell me more about Lane Cove National Park. I'm waiting for a response. 
Here we go. Tell me more about Lane Cove National Park. When it comes back, Lane Cove National Park is a protected national park that is located within the metropolitan Sydney, about 10 kilometres northwest of the city centre. And so on. It goes on and on and on. So I can just continue having this conversation with the search engine. I've not had to go to any websites. I've not had to, like, dig through, like, pages of stuff. Just just right there. That's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. That's all it is, Bing, though. I know, I know. <laughs> but this is it now. This is this so is going heading? to the this is what the expectation of a search engine is now. Yep. Now combine that with voice recognition, right, and a bit of text to speech. Suddenly, you got a personal assistance. Yeah, I mean, this is. I think we yep. spoke on this last time. Is like this is. I would really like to see this incorporated into my Google Homes. Yep. Uh, yeah. Get some way um, better responses. Yeah, totally. Um, so yeah, so there's that I got access to, and have uh, other than that little that that is that campsite search is a thing that I did earlier in the week. I uh, haven't really used it in anger other than that. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I will give it a go. Um, I'll play to the dark side, and if I come up with anything stunning, I'll let you all know. Um, but uh, yeah, I I went away and. I was looking up some chat GPT stuff and, and Google recommended in, in YouTube recommended I look at a couple of videos related to prompt engineering. Now this now, this thing you showed it to me, and I don't want to, don't want to give anything away. Mm, but I mm. was I was really amazed. Like yeah. I learned a lot of cool stuff in these videos. Yeah. And I'll I'll link the video in the show notes. Um now there is a branch of engineering that's emerging and they're calling it prompt engineering. Now it falls into the same sort of engineering class as social engineering, right? It's not really, you know, it's 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 not true. I wouldn't call it true engineering, right? It's not it's not technical in a sense. Um, no, but, but I suppose it's kind of a little bit like, um, you know, there's like a lot of tricks you can do in search engines. You know, making like yep. search on specific, like exactly this sentence or from this website or between these dates. You know, you can do some funky stuff as, I guess, a search engineering. Well, that'd be search engineering, right? Yeah. Yeah. You're engineering the request to get an answer that you're particularly after. Now, prompt engineering is the same sort of concept. There's a concept in artificial intelligence, particularly in language, natural language processing, uh, is... Uh, the, the description of the task is embedded in the input, where the description of the task is embedded in the input. Now, we're just reading from Wikipedia here, e.g., as a question, instead of it being implicitly given, right? Prompt engineering typically works by converting one or more tasks to a prompt-based data set and training a language model. Now, that's a bit, that's a bit wordy, that, that explanation, but uh, I, I've sort of written a summary here. Use of prompts to get the desired result from an AI tool is known as AI prompt engineering. A prompt can be a statement or a block of code. Now, that's data priming. I'll talk about that in a minute. But it can also be a string of words. People invented the method of employing prompts to elicit responses. Right? Similar to how many prompt, how you may prompt a person by starting from a point of view to write an essay. Remember those essay questions you'd get in high school and there's like a big block of text oh, right? yeah. and that prompts you to go the right direction? Same sort of thing, right? Uh, you can use prompts to teach the AI model to produce the desired result when given a specific task, right? Now, there is this concept 
in prompt engineering, and there's a bunch of concepts in prompt engineering, go to a website called learnprompting.org, and they'll teach you all the, the concepts in prompt engineering. But one of the key concepts is called data priming. Now, let's say you had a data set. It might be something, some simple CSV, or it could be an XML or whatever, right? One of the th- And you want to parse that data into some other format or you want to extract something out of that into some other format. Now, you could talk for a month of Sundays to the, the chat and try to explain what you want, but the best way to do it is to prime it with a sample set of data. So you actually load the sample set of data in, and the, you see this in the videos, right, Dave, that, that'll be linked. Mm-hmm. You load the sample set of data in, and I did this with some data on ChatGPT, and ChatGPT goes, oh, I see this is some XML data. It contains blah, 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 blah. What would you like to do with it? Okay, I'd like a Python routine that converts it into CSV and does with this table and that table and that column and that column. Sure, here it is. So good. Done. (laughs) (laughs) This is what you did, isn't it? You were like, given this this export of firewall rules, give me a bash script that converts it into HCL. I'm on to you. (laughs) Not quite. Although I did use ChatGPT for one line of it. But uh, yeah, most of it came from Stack Overflow, to be honest with you. I'm just wondering. Yeah. So could I use it to make regex? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, yeah. That, you, that wizardry that is wet oh, is regex. Wow. Don't get me started. Oh, that's oh, so that's what you, I want. Chat regex is what it, I want. You prime it with the text that you want, and then you describe in natural language what you want the regex to do. It should give you a regex return. Yep. All right. Mm-hmm. Just give me a sec while I go no, reg- register my startup, which is <laughs> chatregex.com. <laughs> I'm going to go hire all of these thought works the and <laughs> Atlassian people. <laughs> so I highly, I highly recommend the two videos I'll put into the, uh, even if you, if you never read the show notes, if you never look at any other show notes, go and look at these two videos. What this one guy does with uh, he, he has an avatar as well, and he combines it with uh, oh. was it the video the video oh, version geez. of Dali? Yeah, yeah, and he gets a talking head. Yeah, that where he like he uses so many different generative AI tools to build like it creates a story, creates a photo, creates a video, creates a, or the uh, text the speech, entire thing, yeah. the whole thing. Like you made a video yeah. with like a voice. Uh, Yeah, a voice actor and, oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. In, like, five minutes. Yeah, and and you see how he was able to prompt the AI with with, with the right sort of prompt engineering to get exactly what he wanted. They weren't just single single lines or simple text, right? And this is a whole new field that's opening up, right? If if you... If you have... Let's say you're into marketing, you understand marketing a little bit, right? Uh, and you can, you know, fine-tune your prompt engineering skills, right? Because, you know, in order to come up with a good prompt, you kind of need to know a little bit about subject matter, right? Uh, if you can get some really good prompts into a, into a chat, AI chat, boy, right? The sky's the limit, really. Yeah, really cool. Hey, um, uh, off topic, but back onto our previous one. Mm. Zero just sacked 15% of their employees 25 minutes ago. 
Right. And hot off the presses, we hear that Zero has sacked a bunch. Yeah. Uh, wow. Seven to 800 people. This happened in the last like half an hour well, of time of recording. So yesterday, I guess, by the time this comes out. By the time you hear this, yeah, it's a recording on the 9th. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So the impact is being felt. Yeah, for sure. Now, Zero is doing uh, finance for small business, right? Yeah, they're uh, they're accounting software like a yeah. Quicken, MYB, Zero, same same sort of deal. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if that's any sort of effect of some of the small. They're getting less business as a result of other businesses going out of business. Could very well be. Yeah. Mm. Um, I remember that being. So I, mean, I happened to work for one of not Zero, but for one of their competitors uh, at the start of the pandemic. And it was certainly a concern at the time. It was like, well, you know, we might have to let some people go because we're expecting a downturn in the economy. It didn't really happen. It didn't happen in 2020. Mm. Guess it's happening now, though. Yeah. yeah. And, I, you know, from what I've seen in previous years, it's typically a delay in Australia. If, mm-hmm. if the globe does something where we're insulated for quite a long period and then suddenly, you know, it comes home to roost. Yeah. So, uh, well, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of people. Yes. 800 people, including software engineers and yeah. So what's that? What's that in the last week? Like sort of about 2000 odd roles. 2000 odd roles. Yeah, yeah. Around the place. Yep. And they're just the ones that made the news, of right? Of course. They're just the big yeah. ones. Yep. All right. Well, I think uh, on that bombshell, <laughs> on that cheery note, <laughs> on that cheery note, <laughs> look, guys, I I really urge you go and check out some of the stuff you can do with prompt engineering, and uh, yeah, let's hope Google catches up with uh, what's going on with this search engine stuff because uh, boy, they don't want to leave it too late. No, definitely not. Yep. Look, we might leave it there. Don't forget, go to iTunes, write us a review. Um, you can contact the show, gcplife at kaslin.com.au. We've got the Twitter there, at gcplife. And uh, the website there, you can just Google that. Uh, maybe try, no, don't go ping it. Just Google it. Uh, <laughs> and don't forget, today's sponsor was Kazna. At Kazna, we make your Google Cloud solutions possible. I think that's enough for us, Dave. We've cracked the one-hour mark on the recording. What do you reckon? I reckon that'll do us. I hope everyone has a nice... Or everyone who's in, like, Victoria and has oh, Labor yeah. Day on Monday has a nice <laughs> long weekend. And for the people who have to keep the lights on, thank you. <laughs> that's me too. That's what I've included. All right. Thanks, guys. We'll see you later. Bye. Bye. <laughs>